everybody, and welcome to another episode of the RPG Companion Podcast, the companion podcast to my Magic the Gathering podcast, Magic with Zuby. Today, we have a special episode for you all. I managed to get Matthew Corley from Kabold Press, Saturday Morning Scenarios, and Sandy Peterson Games to come on and chat with me about writing an RPG, designing an RPG, and just everything else in between for what it takes to write your own RPG slash adventure module. Um, before we begin, uh, let me get into a little bit about our sponsor for this podcast, LegitMTG.com. LegitMTG.com is the place to buy your Magic Singles and Sealed product and has free shipping over any order, $2 or more. Um, be sure to check them out and tell them that Zuby sent you because LegitMTG.com has been a sponsor for us for over three years, and I appreciate it very much and love those guys over there, um, LegitMTG.com. And so, yeah, without further ado, uh, here is Matthew Corley. All right, so, hey, Zuby here with actually my first ever interview for RPG Companion. Um, if you've listened to my Magic with Zuby podcast, you know I've had plenty of interviews here, but with RPG Companion, this is a little bit different here, um, and I wanted to bring on a actual writer who writes rpg books and supplements and sort of like get into their mind and try to figure out you know what the kind of difference it is like prepping campaigns because i've prepped a lot of campaigns in my life but i've never really and i'm starting to actually go into the process of learning how to write an rpg book but i kind of wanted to pick uh my guest brain here about how that differs from writing a campaign versus actually writing a book and to introduce him his name is matt corley a writer for kobold press who r comes up with a lot of stuff it's i just recently got the creature codex and tomb of beasts and i gotta say i love those books um they have helped out my campaign <laughs> tremendously <laughs> oh they're amazing plus oh. you know what they you got something different than the monster manual now too so yes yes not, not that the monster manual is bad but you sort of go through and it and it's like, okay, there's there's got to be some other flavors out there, right? And instead right. of just coming up with my own homebrew, you know, those two books have just expanded it tr like tenfold, essentially. Right. So I guess to start off with, if you want to introduce yourself, Matt, and, you know, who you are and what books you've written, and I, I guess we'll start from there. Sure. So Matt Corley. Um, I've been working with Wolfgang over at Cold Balls for about two years right now. Um the products that I have out uh, available at this point, well, I have uh, Combat Divination is uh, just a little book that I wrote. It's about, I don't know, 12 pages. It's a PDF over at drive through at coboldpress.com. Um, I also um, am the lead designer on Tales of the Margrave, which was the book that actually just popped out about two or three weeks ago. It was a big Kickstarter last year. Um, very, very yeah, happy that about one. that. Yeah, very proud of that one. So uh, lead designer on the project and then also contributed quite a fit quite a bit of the content in um, in both books. So there was a campaign guide and there's also a player's guide. Um, and then I was actually the one who pitched it to Cobalt to kind of, you know, take a book that they had already, which um, tells the Margrave is, gosh, 10, 12 years old now, the original. And fantastic. it was one of their first kind of books that got them noticed. Um, and so I just pitched it one time we were talking and said, you know what, I'm gonna update it for my group. What do you think? And next thing I know, Cobalt is, you know, Wolfgang sending me a contract, nice. which was pretty wonderful, actually. Um, and really, to get back with them, um, I've wrote for the website a few times. Probably, I think I've got four or five articles up. And uh, there's another book that I finished for them that I've wrote a couple chapters in that is kind of in layout and editing right now. That'll be kickstarted later this year. Um, 
which is, I'm trying to remember how much they've said online, but it's not a big secret. Um, but yeah, there's another book that a lot of folks have been asking for that expands Midgard uh, quite a bit geographically. Um, and then there's another book, hopefully I'll be on after that one, that again expands Midgard geographically again. Um, so the Midgard um, campaign book or the Midgard world book and the Hero's Handbook are basically Kobold's, um, you know, kind of their DMG and their player's guide. Nice. Um, and so the newer books are going to be expanding on that, again, geographically to other areas of the of the world that Wolfgang's been, I think Wolfgang started that when he was about 12. Oh, wow. So I'm not going to guess his age, but I'm going to say <laughs> at least 30 years, because I know he's, he's around my age, so at least 30 years, probably a little more. Um, so that's what I've done with Cobalt. I also write pretty regularly for Sandy Peterson. Um, Sandy is the guy that actually wrote Call of Cthulhu, which was the second oh. role-playing game ever. Um, and Sandy's still is big in board games and role-playing, and so he has a he has a fifth edition line. And I wrote an adventure path for him that the first section should be out. It's called Ghoul Island. I think the first path will be out, or the first section of the path will be out in probably July. Uh, it's a four-parter. It takes you through one through fifteen. Um, Tales of the Margrave, for instance, also takes you from levels 1 through 10. It's a bunch of adventures that are, they're linked, um, but more sandboxy. So you don't have to feel like you go from A to B to C to E, um, you know, skipping B occasionally. But, so, and then I'm also writing another AP for Sandy, and then just kind of, I kind of stay busy. I have a couple other publishers that I'm working with that I haven't been able to announce just yet. Um, but again, you know, just stay busy, um, yep, writing adventures like and doing <laughs> oh, adventures and design. So those are the two things that we're really like, and they actually are kind of different. So, so I do enjoy them though. And you have a full-time job as well? I do. I am actually an executive in a healthcare company, a big one. Um, so yeah, I work all day, every day. Um, and then I also, and of course I even forgot to even mention my own product line. Um, I have a company called Saturday Morning Scenarios, and I had a Kickstarter. Yes, I saw for, that one. Okay, I wasn't book. sure if that was part of um, Cobold Press or not. No, that's 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 a company of one. Um, okay. That would be me. And uh, yeah, so I wrote a a Gothic horror book for Fifth Edition that it haven't gotten a huge audience because I don't have a lot of people out there looking at it, but it's got really really good reviews so far. Um, Lampslight Sanitarium, which is over at Drive Through. Uh, right now, but yeah, so I work full time. Um, luckily, I work out of my house, which helps quite a bit as well. And oh, yeah, uh, that helps out a lot. Yeah. So what else? Um, and one more project. Now that I think, so my daughter Harper, um, which as you know was diagnosed with leukemia a couple months ago, and Harp is a gamer. And so we were at the hospital, and before we left, we said, you know, we should write a book. And she loves the stuff that I do. Um, and so her and I kind of put together a, an outline for an adventure path again. Yeah. And I've pulled nine other writers, um, folks that I've worked with from Coldball, people from DMs Guild, Drive Through, all over the place. Ashley Warren, Kiana Shaw, um, MT Black. I mean, so, gosh, people's whose folks whose names are on the Wizards books that are coming out now are helping me in this book. So we have Cobalt people, Wizards people. Um, just, just an amazing group, actually. So, lots of lots of things in the fire. That is <laughs> so. Lots. I thought What's I was. Busy? I like it though. I, th I, I thought I was. It. I thought I was busy here because, um, I mean, besides my full time job is as 
you know, just like we were talking about before, I've got my Magic the Gathering podcast. I got this little companion podcast that comes out very infrequently. I'm also do I also do a weekly live stream Magic the Gathering podcast too. Um, and then I've got another podcast that, and that this is eh, we don't have a name yet for it. We're doing a live. No, not a live stream, but a D&D podcast, a, an actual play podcast D&D. Um, but, and in terms of that, I've also mentioned where I'm also trying to write some adventure modules. Um, d- hearing all that, that you just said, when do you have time to play, actually, like, any kind of RPGs? Rarely. Um, <laughs> That's so what it sounds like. It is, unfortunately. So I don't watch TV either. I don't watch TV at all. Um for whatever reason. So I still exercise on occasion um, and then hang out with the kids when I can. Um, and, you know, I do have a little bit of a life outside of it. But, yeah, I have an every other week campaign. Um, I used to run it, and I did that for about two years. And actually, they didn't know it at the time, but they were they, they went through about half of the Marguerite while I was writing it and updating it. <laughs> um, they definitely helped me out tremendously with that. And switched it over to one of my players who's doing a great job. We're having a lot of fun. We, we potluck. I mean, we just hang out and potluck every other Sunday. Um, yeah. play for about about three or four hours usually. Um, I'm getting on an online game, which I think we're going to be doing on Twitch, actually. So that's going to be Call of Cthulhu. Um, pulp Call of Cthulhu, actually. And, you know, I try to get on, like, a, there's a Cobalt Discord, which is great, and I don't have the address, but I'm sure if you search Cobalt Press Discord, you'll find it. Um, they have games daily and all over the world, so it's almost at any time of day. Um, so I try to hop on there when I can, um, which isn't very often, maybe once a month or so. Um, so yeah. So if you start writing and the more you write, the less you will play. So you will spend all of your time writing instead of playing, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know I'm getting back into it or at least I'm trying to. And so, I mean, what originally got you into RPGs? Like when did you start? 19, I think it was 1983. Um, my older brother bought the D&D box, the red one that, you know, the starter uh, Stranger Things kind of redid it. Yeah. Um, so that original red box set that came out, I think it was 1983 is when he got it. And he brought it home. I was in second grade. He wasn't super interested. I stole it. Um, I <laughs> grabbed the books, go in the corner, read it whenever I could and kind of played on and off um, for the next, I mean, I guess it's been 30 plus years. And through high school on and off a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that, you know, we cell phones were not a thing when I was in college. Um, so, you know, and obviously definitely not the internet in the way it is now. So it really was actually hard to find games and it just was a very different culture than as well anyway. Uh, so I kind of fell out of it and, you know, got divorced five years ago. Uh, and one of the things I decided at that point was I'm just going to do what I want to do. And things that I enjoy doing. And if, you know, however that happens, happens, you know, as far as my friends and whatever else happens. Um, and so one of my friends that I work out with asked me to play magic with him. And then he also asked me about Dungeons and Dragons. I'm like, well, I vaguely know how to play magic because I, I bought, I had I, for about three months in 1995, I played. So if I had any of those cards, I probably actually could buy a house. Um, yeah. You know, that was, that was back when you could still pull a Lotus. Um, yeah. Arabian Nights was brand new, I think, when I was stopping playing. Oh, man. I think. That sounds about right. Um, but Magic, and Magic I love. It's such a fun game. Um, oh, probably is. one of the most fun games I've ever played. Um, however, it's very expensive, um, and it's very yeah. time-consuming. 
at least the way I do it. Um, so, you know, Renee asked me to play D&D one time and we just kind of started playing and then he moved off and my neighbor, one of my neighbors does it, who's uh, his daughter's, my daughter's friends. And we just started chatting and it just kind of blew up from there. Um, just kind of fell into it. And again, it's such a different environment now with D&D and magic and all these games and stuff and all of it just kind of being cool again. Uh, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's so, so out there. I mean, it's so easy to find. Um, it, it really is nowadays. And, and what I mean by it's so weird, it's, I mean, I'm in my um, early 30s, but I still remember, you know, growing up and, you know, when I was playing magic and D&D back when I was a kid, you couldn't even tell your friends you were playing it because that you right. just get made, made fun of. And well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you yeah, get, I <laughs> yeah, you get yeah. relentlessly bullied by your own friends, and it's and I've said this before on my Magic Zuby podcast where you'd have the you'd get make made fun of for playing video games back then, but then if you played board games like you know Magic or D anD D, the people who played video games would make fun of you for playing something even nerdier. Right. And it's it was like this hierarchy of it was nerdiness. it was ultimate nerdiness. It was yeah. about as high it's about as far as you could go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I I mean I still collected the books and read them oh, even yeah. when I wasn't playing them. Um, the only I did skip fourth edition in in entirety. So I know nothing about fourth edition D and D. But yeah, I, you know I gosh I had first edition A D and D book, second edition third third and a half. I didn't do Pathfinder because that was D and D to me. Um, but yeah, I've on and off for 30, 35 years. Wow. That's a, it's pretty impressive. It's in, I have a game. I, I, I DM a weekly game at my LGS right now. And I've got this one guy who's been playing since, oh, what was it? Basic D and D before yep. the uh, first. That's the red set. That red yeah. set was basic. Basic yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Before. Yep advanced D&D came out and yep. just he loves going into the details of like oh this is how this spell used to be and give me the long history which is really cool but it's also kind of like at the same time he's stopping the game and having to give this 10 minute <laughs> speech it's like all right cool man all right it was fun the first time but look, come on let's go <laughs> um no but that's really cool so what made you start writing you know or like writing adventure modules or wanting to write your own kind of books or campaigns essentially Sure. So I, I enjoy writing. I mean, I'm so I'm a pharmacist, um, so that has all sorts of writing stuff to it, right? Um, but <laughs> I enjoy writing a lot. And before I was doing um, Dungeons and Dragons and fiction writing, um, I actually used to do jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. I did that oh, nice. a lot and loved it. And I'm too old and got I was one of the bigger guys and one of the higher ranks and kept getting beat up by all of our fighters. So I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go do something easier and less likely to did get a you, concussion. Did you learn at one of the Gracie studios? No, not from a Gracie, but you know, I've been down to Brazil to watch competitions. Um, I used to write for jujitsu magazine. Um, oh, and nice. so, yeah, I think I read that somewhere. Yeah. So that's, that kind of got me writing and I wrote it honestly because I wanted free stuff and I was on a very, very tight budget. And so if, folks knew I was writing, I would get a free gi or maybe get to train at a gym when I was traveling for free or something like that. And it was fun and I enjoyed it. Um, and so I, but when I stopped jujitsu, obviously I stopped writing and I've always liked, and my, my girlfriend Kelly, who, um, we, we've been together for four, over four years now. And she doesn't play Dungeons and Dragons, has no interest in it whatsoever, but she's very, uh, she always encouraged it and she's always been very, very supportive. And so, 
she just kept telling me, she's like, why don't you just, I mean, I looked, I'd looked at that Cobalt Press website where it says submit for the weblog or whatever. Um, I don't know. I probably stared at that thing for six months. And she just like, just, just send them an email. And it's like, you know what, fine. And I will. And I wrote a, I wrote a very short um, scenario, sent it in. And three months later, Scott Gable sent me back an email and it was in my spam folder. And I don't even know how I found it, but I found it, you know, two weeks later and he had asked me a question. I was like, oh my God, he emailed me back. What do I do? Um, and that's really what got me started with Cobalt. And it was just wanting to write something and wanting to tell kind of a story and enjoying writing the process of writing itself. Um, and, and that's, that's really what it was. And even the thing with Tales, Tales started off with me actually wanting to convert an existing game um, which is the Hollow by Richard Pett, which is very, which is entails um, to my game, and just mentioning it to Scott on the blog, or who runs the blog, and he put he just mentioned it to Wolfgang, and it kind of went from there. Um, so it just it really was just asking, because you never know if you if you if you don't ask, it's not going to happen, you know. So I guess my first paying gig really actually was writing a two hundred page hardback book for Cobalt Press. Oh which is just, it's insane to think of it um, out loud and to say it. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, I had a handful of stuff on their blog. I had professional writing credits from nonfiction, but it really was answering questions, responding to emails. I absolutely know there was at least one person that was there waiting in the wings in case I messed up. But Wolfgang gave me the shot, and he let me be in a position where it's mine to lose. And I just did my best and I worked hard and I, I just say it worked out. That's really awesome. Good job. Yeah, and you know what? That's... I mean, you sh there's no reason not to try. Oh, yeah. You know? And like I said, Wolfgang gives a lot of folks a shot um, on the website, you know, on that blog or even in the um, Warlock Patreon that the Warlock is the magazine that Cobalt does as their Patreon. Um, I see new names in there all the time. Uh, I mean, names that I might know just from Twitter or whatever, but people that I've never seen, people that get their first publishing credit with Wolfgang, it, it's pretty staggering, actually. I think it's, gosh, I, that'd be a great thing to know. Actually, this, how many people has Wolfgang, how many people have Wolfgang brought into this industry um, or helped in some way? Um, and I, I bet it's a lot, actually, you know. So, yeah, it's just getting out there and giving it a shot and seeing what happens. And so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about and really pick your brain, because like I said, I'm trying my hand at writing my first adventure module. I've written plenty of campaigns and, you know, one shots. But one of the things that I've noticed just from my campaign notes and, you know, when I when I set up encounters and all that stuff compared to trying to write this adventure module is I'm not writing for myself anymore. I'm writing for people that could potentially be trying to run this game that I'm trying to create. You know, right. what are some what are some of the biggest differences between prepping a campaign versus writing an actual adventure module? So writing a so doing something that's just for me or just for my friends. Um, I mean, we can just go go from it mechanically. I can write shorthand. I don't need to write sentences. I can use bullets. I can literally do screenshots from my computer to throw in stats. Um, organizationally, it's different as well um, because I actually will write it different. If it's just for me, it will be bullet points that might not make any sense to anybody else. 
um, and it will be talking points. It'll be just like, you know, like when you're doing a PowerPoint slide or something like that, yeah. you don't read the slide. You know, so you just do your notes. And again, that's all it is. So you can skip a lot of content. I mean, I could probably, and you know what, these, um, gosh, who does it? I'm trying to remember if it's John or so like John Sawaski or what is it? Uh, Mike Shea's Slide Flourish. There's a lot of different folks out there and you can do this is I can, if you give me five index cards, I could probably run you a game for two or three or four hours. And that's all I really need, especially if you give me five index cards and hand me a hardback. That's all I need, you know, hard, like Toma Beast or Codex or, or Volos or whatever. Yeah. Um, any of it's fine. And I can read the expression of the folks on the room and I can change. And I do constantly. When I am writing an adventure, though, I need to have some sort of basic storyline. But from just like a structural perspective, it's, it's almost like a screenplay. And this is something I didn't even realize until recently when I was talking to a friend that's an author um, who, who's a published, like a fictional author, and actually Lou, Lou Anders, who does stuff actually now for Cobalt Occasionally too. And I was talking to Lou about I wanted to write a novel, like an actual novel. And, he, and he's like, you know what, write it. Let me teach you how to write a screenplay. And then I kind of looked at him like, okay, this is exactly what I do anyway, where it's a location, it's characters, it's the action, done. And you're kind of, fin I mean, that's kind of what it is. And so... When I write an adventure, though, for someone else, I am going to start very basic, and then I am going to set it up and say, this is my location. And I, I do box text. I love it. That... Oh, I don't know. Did I lose you? I think I may have lost you here. Oh, no. All right, so we're having a little bit of an issue here. I think I may have lost Matt here temporarily. Um we are working on it here so just bear with us get back here okay so sorry about that folks we had a little bit of technical difficulties so we're back um yeah so if you want to continue on uh just just really you were talking about so it's kind of like writing a screenplay which is interesting i never really thought about it from that aspect and um yeah if you just want to continue on with that right so with the screenplay and the way i look at it is i tend to for a four-hour adventure i tend to try Anywhere from five, maybe seven. Um, I even label them as scenes. Um, because each one is going to take 20 to 30 minutes or so. And so I, everything I write, well, not everything, but almost everything I write, I want it to be done in four hours. Now, so you like can the whole adventure? You want it to be done in four hours? The adventure, yeah. That section of that adventure. So the adventure, the oh, entire... Okay. Like, I may write an adventure path, which is 15 adventures. So when, uh, uh, I'm sorry, when you when you're talking about adventure path, what does that mean? So an adventure path is going to be a set of linked adventures that put you through a much larger storyline. Oh, so, okay. OK. Yeah. So like Ghoul Island, which I wrote for Sandy, is 15 of them. So you have 15 adventures. You will go so, from level one through level 15. And it's a it's a storyline. It's a very big storyline. So um, Pathfinder used to do it. Okay. Um, it's kind of, I mean, it's just like the hardbacks that the D&D the &D hardbacks, the Wizards hardbacks are kind yeah. of like adventure paths. Okay, so yeah, so forgive my ignorance on this. It's I'm still kind of new to a lot of this <laughs> jargon here. So adventure path, is that, so when you're talking about like 15 adventure paths, is that sort of meaning maybe almost similar to like 15 chapters in a sense? Or? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And that's how, so, so I want to have my, my adventure, my story be able to be completed, that section of that story be completed in one session. 
I see what you mean. Okay. okay. And that's where I'm going. Yeah. So again, we could it, chapter, I think is how wizards typically does it. I do yeah. it as scenes and acts. Um, I, it, they're all right. You know, they're all whatever works for you, but it, I'd hate to have you write something that is like six hours long on purpose. You know, it, it might be on accident just because of that's the way things are, but we don't want to, I don't like to have, I like my sessions to have a fair, be something that you can finish at the table while you start it so that you don't have to remember, well, we're sitting in room 3B, um, we just did this, but it's not a clear stop. You know, I want to stop at like a, a cliffhanger or at a clear point in the story um, where you're finished. And then the other thing that I do, um, and I know we're on a tangent slightly, is I actually use milestone leveling. So that what that means is at the end of whatever number of adventures or whatever amount of time, you move up a level. So you finish one adventure, you go to level two. You finish another one, you're level three, so on and so forth. Um, I like that because it really lets me tell the story I want with the creatures and traps and items, levels that I want. So, you know, maybe your number is three adventures for one level. Maybe your number's one adventure for one level, which is what I did for the uh, one for Sandy, because you wash up on shore as basically a level one character, and at the end of it, you have to essentially face a great old one, which is basically a god. So I can't let you do that over three months, or, you know, we can't go three years um, for you to get to level 15. We kind of got to yeah. get you there faster. Um, and I also don't want you to spend, you know, a hundred hours leveling up. You know, this isn't Skyrim. I mean, I, I want this to move kind of fast because the story is what's important. Um, and players love getting new stuff. And you know what, at the end of your session, every session, when you can say, you know what, you go up level, they're happy. You know, everybody likes that. So that's, that's nice. Um, and again, I like it for giving me a structure so that I know what I can and cannot do with my stories. Okay. Very interesting. Um, Another question I have is when you're writing these, how do you exactly balance them in terms of like the encounters that you're going to have? Like, how do you think of, all right, how many players are like the optimal amount for this adventure and right. how hard or easy or challenging should I make the encounters as well too? So there's a lot of finessing to that and a lot of art to that um, because every group is, can be very different Anything I write is going to say four to five adventurers of X level. That's you can start building, you can start bunching levels together. You know, one is its own thing, two and three relatively similar, but then you, you know those natural increments of power, like when you get a second attack or when you get third level spells, or you know, just there's a the tiers are there for a reason. Um, and they tend to do a pretty good job of telling you when you power up significantly, like an eighth or a ninth level, not that different. Um, but again, first to second, that's actually pretty huge. Um, third and fourth, because you get your ability score increase and you know all those things, fifth level, you get some fun stuff. Like That's what you have to pay attention to. Um, but as far as balancing it, one of the best things to do, and it's not cheating, I promise, is to <laughs> use stuff that's already published. And so that's one of the things I would definitely tell you, if you're wanting to write an adventure for a company, so if you want to do it for AAW, or you want to do it for Cobalt, or you want to do it for Cowwood, you know, if you want to work for Cobalt, say, Wolfgang, here's this venture. It has these five creatures from Creature Codex. Two things. One is you are bringing in one of his products, which is awesome. That's yeah. From a purely just business standpoint, that's what he wants to see. 
you are also taking out all that design at it off of your own shoulders because they designed it, someone else did it, it has been play tested. Cobalt play tests enormously and change stuff all the time based on their play testing. So you know it's balanced. And so you don't have to guess as much. And to take that a different way, or at least to kind of build on that, is if you do want to create something new, and I do encourage people to do that too, is you, you don't want to just copy everything. That's not fun. Um, however, you can with you can look at creatures that are of a similar CR to what you want, and you can you can see things. And especially if, if you have a little bit of a math brain, especially, or if you just are persistent and pay and just kind of play enough, you'll see that a CR five character normally has this many hit points. And you know, there's a lot of that's actually in the DMG anyway. Yeah. But what's really fun is when you start looking at the abilities and the actions that aren't just I'm swinging a great sword, you know, the whale of a banshee, the you know, um, the breath of a dragon, the gaze of a Medusa, it's all this, the gibbering of a gibbering mouth, all that stuff is in there. And if you're willing to put in the research, and that's I'm a huge research person, um, I will read everything I get, and that's one of the reasons why I don't watch TV is I'm always reading. Um, but if I want to create a Valkyrie or I want to create, you know, maybe I'll look for fine greater steed, which is a spell in Xanthar's. I know what level that is. So I have an idea where that goes. Then I will look at, you know, maybe I want to give her, you know, lightning imbued attack. So I can find something that has that somewhere. You know, there are thousands of monsters out there and I don't have to, you know, it's not cheating to use someone else's information as inspiration and or adapting or anything like that. You know, every designer that I know, and myself included, if you use stuff I've made to make it better for you, I am super excited. You all have my permission to slice, dice, cut, whatever you want, anything that I have ever put my name on to make it however you want to do it. Because um, I think that's great. And I think that's we all build upon the success of the others. I mean, Fifth edition didn't come out of the ground fully formed. Yeah, it came from the last forty years of D and D. I mean, you can even look at so there's a uh, a D twenty Call of Cthulhu book, which is about eight or nine or ten years old. I don't remember. Um, I've got a hardback behind me on my desk. But um, <laughs> if you look at the spells, you'll recognize them. There are even in a Call of Cthulhu D twenty book that Wizards wrote years ago with Monty Cook. Um, you will you'll recognize the spells. Because they just keep refining them. And that's really what we're doing is we're refining stuff. Yes, you will come up with new stuff, which is fantastic and awesome. But again, you don't have to come up with stuff in a vacuum. Um, and, and that's you know that's just the way things are in general. Nothing is truly, I don't know, I'll probably say it wrong, original. Um, we all are inspired by or building off of something. Yeah. You know, the, the catch word is leveraging if I was at work. Uh, we're leveraging existing you know, resources or infrastructure or whatever else we're talking about. But it still works. Um, and that's that's oddly enough something I learned at my job that still works here is research and find patterns and use things that other people have already done. Um, put your spin on it, make it different, make it your own. Um, but do that, you know. Like I even wrote uh, twenty-page um, sanity guidelines for fifth edition. Fifth edition guidelines from sanity and the DMG are like a page and a half. It's like three chat. It's like three tables. And what I did is I actually use spells that I know of. I use Cthulhu books. I use other editions. And I kind of pushed it all together into my own thing. And it, it, I think it works really good. And it adds a lot to the thing. And it's a very different... It's fast. It reboots quick. Yeah. No, that's okay. Hey, uh, so just recording back again. 
Um, sorry about that, folks. We will get through this. So with the magic of editing, <laughs> you're, it's just going to go right next to the next segment of the video. So okay. apologies, folks. So don't worry. I mean, these things happen. It's I'm just glad it's not raining in Florida right now because I've had, oh man, let me tell you, I've had some podcast interviews to where we're like two hours into it. A thunderstorm hits my area all of a sudden and my computer shuts down and I lose that two hour interview. Oh, oh the worst thing ever. So, <laughs> um, <sighs> so you were talking about some of the sanity, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, so you were going on about, um, sort of like, it, it almost sounded like you were talking about sort of like homebrew, like may, maybe creating some homebrew encounters or something like mm -hmm. that. But one of the things that I'm really interested in and, and the things that I'm trying to understand and learn from writing my adventure module is the encounter. So what I'm using is I'm just using, uh, monsters that are already in the monster manual um i'm not i'm i don't have any plans for really creating any of my own monsters maybe towards the end of the book maybe like a homebrew boss or something like that but for just like the everyday encounters that the players may come across how do you sort of balance those out when you're sure. writing so the first two things, so I will look at CR, of course, because that's fast, that's easy. But to be honest, especially with D&D &D, and anybody who's played it or run it knows this, is that whoever is outnumbered loses, almost always. Um, it is super easy, not super easy, but you know, five level eight characters can beat a CR 12, CR 13 monster mm -hmm. pretty, I mean, fairly regularly. Um, and so you kind of have to take that into account is the fact that, you know, looking at the hit points is nice and quick. Um, look at how many attacks they're going to have versus how many attacks. I mean, look at the number of attacks on each side and look at the amount of damage each side can do at a time. That helps. Um, I could probably, not even probably, I could certainly pretty easily design an encounter where a 20 level one, you know, CR one kobolds could decimate a 10th level party easily. Oh, because all you have to do is, you, okay, so you put them in cover at elevation with bows. Done. It's And you know what? All 20 of them attack at the same time. Yeah. If you And so if they have surprise, I and, you know, there's, that's that's done. You finished it, actually, because I can roll, you know, it doesn't matter how good your AC is. I mean, well, it does, but, yeah. you know, that that's one way to do it. The other one is if you're worried about people that have that AC of 30, which drives me nuts, you use magic missile, you use fireball. Blade you know? song wizard. <laughs> yes. Blade <laughs> singers, yes. Um, so, but it that actually matters a lot. So that's where I think a lot of folks get disappointed when they roll up against some dragon. And it ends up being not very epic or not very interesting, or it just ends up being too easy. And it's because we're not using the right number of creatures. Um, because again, that damage output, it's... It is CR dependent to a point, but it, it's not always, once you get outnumbered, things get really weird. You know, at five CR ones, it is a CR, you know, is supposedly a CR five, um, but it's not. Because I mean, if you look at a CR one character, it's not a fifth level character. I mean, yeah. you've played enough that you know that. So, you know, you kind of, but if you gave them three more or four more, you know, that's a CR nine, all of a sudden it gets kind of complicated or it gets harder. It gets harder for the DM, too, because there's so damn many people on the board. Um, but that's probably one of the biggest things that I see. The other one is that, you know, too many short rests, too many long rests. 
Um, just let people do, you know, oh, we fought something. I've lost six hit points. I want to take short rest or <laughs> whatever. You know, and that's, oh, that's yeah. totally fine. Um, and as a, and depending on what I'm writing, I will actually write sidebars that say yes or don't say yes or no to that, but say this is how I wrote it. If you want to make it easier or harder, do this or that. You know, that's don't cool. let them take a short rest every 15 seconds. That's not complicated. I mean, and it's, and you know what, you're, and I would I always write it as saying that, like I said before, there's always a caveat. It's like, if you want to make this more or less, do this. And it's very, that's actually a pretty simple thing to do is to limit the short rest, limit the long rest. If they're taking a long rest, have something interrupt it. it it's fine. I mean, it stops it. And all of a sudden, everything got much harder. Um, and I think there's a, a you know, an, an expectation out there for a lot of players and even some DMs that one encounter, it's an encounter, rest, encounter, rest. And it's really not what it should be. And that's not even how it's designed. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, three, four, five encounters, short rest, you know, and then maybe a long rest, one long rest per day um, is another one. Have a time on it. Have a clock. I put clocks on stuff all the time. And I have absolutely written things that said, if they took three short rests, this is what happened. If they took one, this is what happened. And if you take three short rests, it's way worse because they had time to prepare. Stuff happens when you're not there. Um, and I'm trying to remember what, I, gosh, I've written too many of them and edited too many of them. But yeah, so if there's a clock, you know, let's say somebody is preparing for you and you take your time to get there, those 20, you know, those 20 cobalts have shields and they're behind an embankment. And they have a couple traps set up. And the second you step in, they're going to shoot you 20 times. And they'll shoot whoever. And that's the other thing is people don't always play their drug. They say, well, he's not that smart. You know, a level eight or a, an intelligence eight monster is smart enough to know that you kill the wizard first. You know, it's not that hard. You know I mean? And, yeah. Or, you know, or maybe, and again, you could play that other way and say, well, this guy knows that you're in a lot of armor. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And I've done that to my players and annoyed them when they say, I'm like, you're on full plate. I've missed you six times in a row. I'm going to go away and I'm going to hit the guy next to you or a guy down the, you know, down the, down the encounter. Um, but anyway, um, so I think I kind of on my tangent, I've lost my train of thought, but with that's, that's a big one with the encounters is really to look at that um, action economy, I think is what, one of the words that we use. Um, but again, how many actions there are on both sides of the fence. And also, don't be like, don't feel like you can't suggest to your DM, like, you know, what, don't let them have a long rest, or don't let them, or if this happens, this happens. Um, give them consequences that will kind of follow them to a point. Um, did I answer that question? I feel like well, I got. I, I, I like <laughs> I like the answer, and I like where you're going. The the biggest thing that I gleaned from that was writing sort of the sidebars. Um, because sidebars are fantastic and need yeah. to be all over the place. Yeah, I like that idea because, as you're saying, even though your adventure may be recommended for four to five players, let's say the DM can only get two or three players, right? That way you can write something like, okay, well, instead of five bandits here, maybe you do three to four, right? right. Oh, but oh, but you're in a party of six to seven players, and okay, we're going to up it to ten bandits now, or right. something something like that. So I yep. really, I really like that idea because I've been really trying to research um, the CR calculator, like that... Um, I've seen on websites where you can sort of input in like, okay, so I've got five level ones and how many, how many CR one eights can I, you know, put in before it's too hard of an encounter, right? you know, 
And right. I, I like the idea of the action economy too, because I've seen some of the streams that Mike Merles does where mm -hmm. he's actually, I think coming up with a new monster or something like that. And he goes, he has this spreadsheet of how much damage output one monster yep. can do in a round. And I guess I've never really thought about that for all players. Like how much damage can all these level Player. ones do in one round potentially? And, Right, and so that's what you want to think about um, with your skills, also in your skill challenges, um, well, not skill challenges, or ability checks um, in, in this edition. But So before I forget, though, something else with your encounters that you are absolutely can do and should do if you want, I've done, is you can definitely write an encounter that says you see one goal, yeah, one null per PC. Now it's, now it's flexed. It's whatever, it's one, it's two, it's seven, it's however many. Um, I like no. that. Yeah. So it's variable, and it gives everybody freedom. And again, the other one, if you go in the other way, and you can say one per, one half per, whatever. John Sawatsky did one that was way more complicated than that. That was very good in one of his adventures and tales. Um, but it's simple. And you have a, if you have a group of level... I don't have math in front of me. So let's say we have a group of level like four, maybe level five characters, and we have a CR1, and we want it to be hard. Let's give them one per. One CR1 guy per level five guy, depending on which CR1 you get, you've got a pretty decent fight on your hands most of the time. Um, and if you want to make it awful, you can do two CR1 halves and just make sure they go. If they go first, and that's, and that's another thing that I do that has nothing to do with this, but... Um, I actually don't have all my enemies go at the same time. I break them up in groups of three at most oh, because okay. I do not like having seven people going at the same time. It's, I just don't like it. I think it's silly. I'll use a bell curve. I don't even always roll. So if it's a, you know, if it's a dex of 10, a uh, dex with plus one, the average guy goes at the 11, slightly better, you know, then a couple of them will go at 14, a couple of them will go at eight, you know, just kind of bell curve it. You don't have to be, yeah. yeah. You don't have to be perfect at all, but it spreads it out because that's the other thing is what if you know they all roll twenties on their you know initiative and nobody goes. It's which is kind of frustrating. Um, yeah. So say and there's they no kill reason to kill the players in, in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a passive initiative almost. It's probably an easy way a passive initiative and then go plus or minus four to spread it out more if you've got like a ton of them. So. Nice and easy. Saves me a roll. I'm going to take that idea because I, I do pretty <laughs> much where I just have them all go at once because it's it's easier for me to manage that. But I like that kind it of is. bell curve, you know, initiative it, there. I, like I love it. And you know what? My players do it now, and I don't even think they know better because um, they've just always played my games. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but the other one, so we were talking about um, before, I, before I took you off. So the same thing with your skill, um, oh, skill checks, your ability checks is – I have written, and you know, there's things that say, well, you can't have an ability check at 25. That's that's just too damn high. Well, not really. So if I have a bard, we all do, because at least all my players always have a freaking bard. Um, <laughs> and everybody does rogues too, and they have expertise. So you yeah. can very easily get bonuses, just bonuses of plus six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Plus with the inspiration. Yeah. Well, so let's do, again, we'll do the math. It's, there's a lot of good stuff that's on basic math, and you can write spreadsheets for it, but let's just say it's all, let's do it to 10. So a bard, and I had a monk that did this too with perception, at a relatively early level, you know, a tier 3, early tier 3, late tier 2, I have a passive perception of 18, 19, 20. 
mm-hmm. you can do that with other skills too. So all of a sudden, you know, you know, I actually one of the I can't remember it was it was my the the person writing my check at the time didn't like asked quite he didn't it didn't didn't like it he questioned it my numbers and I said all right here's how I got it it's a eighth level character so let's assume at least a plus four on whatever skill that is it's a group of five. So there's a plus four there. There's a plus three for their um, proficiency. There's a seven. Probably have expertise. So we're at 10. Guidance is a 1d4. So I'm 11 to 14. Inspiration, I'm at another one. So it's, it's, it's not hard. Uh, well, it is hard. You have to do it on purpose, but players do. Um, you can absolutely get a 30 on stuff. And oh, yeah. All of a sudden, I mean, and you've seen it at a table. If you've played a table that's a tier three or higher, and even tier twos in some cases, you've seen 25s and 30s. And we have characters that have an investigation of, or passive, you know, or plus 10 or plus 13 of, on any random, and anything that they think is good. Which is where another thing, I actually do like medicine checks all the time. I put them in my things because nobody uses them or nature or survival. I mean, that's another thing to kind of make sure that your players, um, the ones that invest in that get rewarded and the ones that don't invest in it, it's consequence, you know, and that's fine. That's the way life is. Um, but yeah, I actually had to explain to someone else that is going to be signing a check that, no, I really don't want us to remove that check. Um, because I want people to do that. I want people to do these things. Um, and, and to look kind of outside the box, um, it's you know we don't want to put all our all our points in perception, and investigation, and maybe persuasion or whatever else it is depending yeah. on your player. Um, but you know there's three or four that everybody does. Yeah, for sure. Um, so speaking of ability checks, when you're writing a campaign like that, how do you determine what kind of checks, what what the DC is going to be? And yeah, so I, I won't say arbitrary, but it kind of is arbitrary. <laughs> Um, I absolutely will take into account the average, so the proficiency level of that character or that level character, which is why I don't write something that says this is good for levels one through 10. If somebody's, it's possible, but God, that would be hard. I mean, I can't imagine the effort and the design that would take. Um, And, you know, you'd have a 40 page book that's really eight pages long. It's just repeated because you have to adjust it so much. Uh, But anyway, uh, so I will do that. I will assume somebody in the party has proficiency. So that gets me. uh, And then I will assume that that proficiency is a plus two or plus or their ability is also a plus two plus three. So I will assume first level guy. There's somebody with a plus five ish. Um, If I had a piece of paper in front of me, I might change that number a little bit. But. At that point, I'm going to look and say, all right, how badly do I want them to get this? Because if this is something that's critical to the plot and they don't find it, we're kind of all screwed. Yeah, it doesn't advance. Exactly. I don't want the DM to hand wave too much, um, but it is what it is. Um, And then also, I I do think narratively, how hard is it? So there might be something. I mean, I wrote something in a third level adventure that had a DC of like 23, and the editor's like, "Why?" I'm like, "Well, I don't think they're going to get it, but it's there." Um, you know, it was something somebody else put in there. I'm like, you know what? That's kind of a neat idea. On the off chance that it happens, that's really, really neat. Um, and that's as much for the DM as it is. Actually, it's more for the DM than anybody, to be honest with you, because it's not going to happen. Um, but again, that's where you do. You're going to take in that basic math, that basic character, and say. 
five or whatever number we're seeing at one or two, level one, two is. Um, and then balance that with how badly we want them or how badly they need to know this and how many other chances they have to learn it. Um, I really like investigational mystery type things, which some folks think is D&D is not suited for that. And I think that's, I don't think that's true. I think it's the D&D mentality may not be, but it's not the system. The system's a system. It's, it's, it's math. Math is math. It's not going to make yeah. a difference one way or the other. It's the approach to design and the approach to the game and the players and the DM that makes it where. And so I had a, basically there were, it's actually the one I wrote for Harper. And so there's a bunch of clues all over the town. They all have a CR or a DC of, I don't know, 13, 14, which is kind of high for a first level adventure. However, there's like seven of them. Somebody will find it. It'll be, I mean, at some point, somebody will get it. And so I kept the DC somewhat higher in some cases because, again, I didn't want to make it easy. I didn't want them to find it seven times, but I also didn't want them to not find it at all. So it's kind of that, like with a mystery or an investigation, it's kind of that rule of three. Anytime you want somebody to find something, do it three times just to make sure they find it once. Um, so hopefully that helped to a point. And again, I, I wouldn't be afraid. I'm never afraid of doing a DC of 20 plus ever. I absolutely put them in there and you know what? I'll put stuff in there knowing you probably will fail and you'll get a consequence because that's the way things go. Um, and the other less than popular thing, at least with my players, um, I don't know that I put it in a game yet. I probably have. I don't remember. Um, there are things you cannot do. A natural 20 is not an automatic success. I say that in probably every other podcast. Um, a natural <laughs> 20 is 20. It's only an automatic yeah. success if you're hitting something. Yeah. Um, and a one is not a failure unless you're swinging at something. Otherwise, it is what it is. So that 20 and your orc is dumb as a post is a 19 or whatever or you have a plus 15 on your you know like i had a guy with stealth and i had pass without trace and so my stealth rolling a one was a 23 and it's wow. like okay so let's just kind of let's get there you know it's that's i don't think it's unreasonable to say no you can't do that you know somebody's gonna say i walked up to the king and i you know picked his pocket i rolled a 20 it's like awesome you just got killed because every guard in there just shot like you know just speared you to death because they're all watching um yeah it's like you know you could be the best i mean you're not david copperfield and even if you are you know it's not like you're going to be able to trip you to disappear um which i guess you can in dnd but again (laughs) i don't don't feel like you can't tell somebody that no you can't do that regardless of the role you can let them roll or not that's kind of whatever. Um, no, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I, I like doing that to <laughs> to my players when I know it's something. Even if they roll a nat twenty, they can't do. I'm like, okay, roll. Oh, nat twenty. Yeah, no, sorry, nothing happens. It or, still doesn't happen. <laughs> yep, I love it. Um, now that that's really cool. It's you've given me a lot of good ideas here. Um, it, it especially sort of changed my thought process for at least writing an adventure module. Um, let let me ask you this. Um, just because maybe for some advice here. So one thing that I started doing with my adventure module I'm trying to write, um, I'm only going to do a three chapter sort of adventure module. It's going to be maybe from levels one to four. Um, and one of the things I started off first before I even wrote it was I wrote a um, sort of storyboard or a flow chart of how I want mm-hmm. the adventure to go. Um, yep. What other kind of ideas could I look into when I'm starting an adventure, because I've got all these other ideas I eventually want to write out when the, the, my biggest problem is time. 
you know, right. like, like most people. But what, what yeah. are some other things that someone like myself or someone who may be listening who's interested in wanting to write a venture module? Like, what's a good way to start off? Is a flowchart or storyboard a good way? What, what other ways are there? You know what? I, I'm going to say there's probably no wrong way other than not doing anything. Um, everybody does it their own way. There are things, so I have a, like, I have, I have got a, I get paid to do process improvement and mapping and all yeah. like as a real job. I have done those things. Um, Six Sigma, Lean, all that junk. So I am an enormous fan of mind maps and flowcharts. Um, and actually, I think they can work really, really well in a game um, if that's your process and if that's how your mind works. Because, again, you can say, I'm here, and then we can go, well, if they go X, I go to this circle. Yeah, exactly. Or B, I go to that circle. It really, that lends itself to a sandbox-type environment incredibly well, and I love that idea. Um I will do it occasionally, and I wish I did it more, because actually that would be something that I've seen in adventures, not WotC stuff, but other systems. Um, gosh, who does it? That was so good. Shoot, I want to say it's a Cthulhu-ish type thing, but um, they, they they have these, again, they have those, chains, those charts, so if you go to A, B might be a little bit different. So, I mean, they have that chain that actually it goes different all over. I mean, and you kind of know if you, if you map it out, it makes more sense than me just waving my hands. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to look at your story and to get an idea that way. I am using a lot of outlines now. I mean, like literally use the outline feature on Word. And I will say, again, kind of from the screenplay sets kind of situation, and I have it's roughly similar. I will say, this is my intro text, which is generally describe the place. And it it's and again for me I love back, I love block text and I, I have a lot of my friends that don't, um, but your box text has to be evocative and short. But anyway, so I'll have my box text. Then I'll have a little piece under that that says this is kind of what's really happening for the DM. Then the next thing under that will be and it's I label it development and this will be all the stuff that's happening. So basically skill checks. Then I will have creatures under that and it will be the creatures of course. And then under that is treasure. And that's it. And then I just fill it in. And I will start off with, I might have a sentence in each. And I will do that seven times. And then I will come back and I will put a second sentence. And I just build on it as it goes. I do occasionally just pull through it. That's, I've got to be feeling it, I guess, without, I don't know a better way. I just got to be really like feeling the game and that story to be able to just pull through it, straight through it. Otherwise, I have to build it in layers. Um, and then I use my sidebars a lot and or even just in the text and say, you know, if this happens, then that. And I, I do, you know, I do if then all the time because I even when I write an ape, you know, an adventure path, which is by definition a linear story that goes 300 plus pages. I still want to make it at least feel like the players have some choices, um, whether or not the player has a choice actually doesn't really matter. What matters is if they think they have a choice. And if they feel like they have a choice and they feel like they can drive the story, that's what matters. Um, there, you know, I, again, I can give you a forest and say scene one, I don't even have to tell you where it is. It doesn't matter where it is. It just matters what happens. Um, so your players can sit there and I could give them a table and you say, we go north. I'm like, okay. And I look at my table and say that this is, this is what happened. And then when I look at the player, and again, I use this term a lot in there and I think I stole it from Matt Colville, which is, when pacing allows, do this. Or at the GM's discretion, do this. 
And again, I'm giving it to the DM so that you can decide when your table is ready for it. Because maybe you want a six-hour game, maybe you want a two-hour game. I'm giving you a four, so you can cut. You know, you can go up and down however you want. Um, yeah. And even a four-hour game, even when I write what I think is four hours, you can always go longer. I mean, we all know that. Oh, yeah. D&D can go forever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, and that's... So another thing that's really nice, if you're doing a like a three-parter... Um, if it's a wherever it happens to be so something and if you get a chance and i'm going to plug tales because i love these things that i put in i put in these um i do encounter charts or encounter tables and i guess i put the word random in them occasionally but they're not really random i always say choose a role and when i give you an encounter table it's going to be like two sentences it's not you see one d6 bugbears it's um and I'm going to blank. But anyway, you see, you know, a group of urchins comes out of the woods or, you know, comes up the road, is playing with you, playing ball, yada, yada, yada. They walk off. And then, and the thing for the DM is that the D, you know, if a player has a passive perception of 14, they realize they just got their pocket picked. <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, and they actually ran, and that's much more fun. And that was, I, I butchered that. But that's more fun yeah. than me saying you run into D4 halfling thieves. Which is what you did, uh, or you know that's there's a you can do a very nice minimalist like three two three sentence um, almost mini adventure hook in your encounter charts, and then you just pick which one sounds cool for your table because I'll give you eight or nine, and I don't know your table, so you might hate six of them. Hopefully, you'll like two, um, and then you pick those two, um, and that that's how you can that's also how you can build stuff in the story, and then you can put story seeds for things further down the road, like. You find a Zebzeg egg, which is something from one of Sandy's games. Um, you know, you find this this glowing orb and a crater. It is both soft and hard and cool and cool and warm at the same time. And you can't help but want to touch it. And that's kind of a cool thing. And honestly, you know, you know that if you say that right and you know that to your players, that's 30 minutes. You know, it might be. I mean, that's and like, okay, it's just an egg. turn into a whole side quest right there. Exactly. And that's what they're meant to do is to be yeah. other stuff. So if I give you a table of 10 options, that's why my that's why that's what I hope when I give you an adventure and I say it's four hours long, I will give you a table or two usually in some way, shape or form that you can make that four hours 10 if you really want to. And I say that. And so pick any pick as many of these as you want to fill your time or skip them if you don't have it. Um, and that's flexibility is great. Yeah, flexibility is great um, to give your DMs because we all need it. We never know how much time we're going to have. Oh, yeah. um, and when we have a lot of time, we don't want to stop. The The other thing I was thinking about just now um, is when you're writing these adventures, like I said, you're sort of writing them for a much broader audience for DMs. There are a lot of DMs that just m myself and maybe like you, you said when you're coming up to your campaign notes, you could even just go based off of four or five index cards and that's it. That's all you need. I'm yep. pretty similar. It's like when I'm starting a new campaign, I like to have a lot of stuff at first, just, you know, general plot lines and hooks and all that stuff. But a few sessions in, it's sort of like my prep becomes, okay, maybe one or two sentences and boom, we go on for the next four or five hours. You know, when I think of campaign books, it's, when I, I I have a hard time doing a lot of pre-written campaigns because I'm so used to improvising a lot of my stuff. Right. So when I think about writing a campaign book, what's hard for me is 
how would I myself want to keep, if I was running this campaign myself, how would I want to keep interested in going as, as the book says, if that makes any sense? It does. So, well, I guess the first thing is to have a story that people, you know, want to follow and want to find out about. I mean, that, that's, that's it to begin with right there. Is this interesting? If it's interesting enough, that'll help. Then you do need to pull them in and actually have the players involved, actively involved. And there's some way, shape or form. Um, Challenge of the Fang is a great adventure in Tales. And basically what happens is that the Margrave is the forest and the forest is alive. It's a sentient being kind of. Um, And every generation, there is a challenge between civilization well basically i'm trying to remember the exact terminology we use but basically there's a challenge between civilization and the wild and the civilization is basically human or whatever and the wild is essentially a wolf and a player at the dm's choosing is chosen to be the champion for human for humankind for the margaret that's awesome for that generation and however that works that's how the margrave will treat people in all people like, you know, you are in, you know, basically if you're an ass and you start burning down trees, it will decide that all people are that way for the next 80 years. And it will try again. Um, and so you are in the middle of this, um, this, this challenge and you get these little challenges happen all the time by different fairies and different fae and different creatures of the forest. And again, there's no map at all because you're in a forest you do whatever you want so we'll give you a lot of good encounter tables which again gives you if you write the encounter table right um and you give it and you put some some thought and effort into it it gives you an enormous amount of flexibility and it gives you what you're saying is i want to give them stuff that keeps them interested Mm -hmm. Uh, and you could just pull stuff in all the time too if you want i mean just do whatever you want um but again that's that's how we did it. And, you know, my friend Brian, who is the one who actually won the challenge of the thing and got Wolf Killer, uh, he he loves it. They all got invested immediately right then. Brian especially. But everybody got invested at that point. You know, you can have recurring NPCs. If, um, you can have, you know, one thing I did, and this was actually, this was a, and so I'm going to, oh, I forgot to say, sorry, so. Homebrew, the only difference between homebrew and professional is that we just put more art to it, you know, and we may put, <laughs> we tried a little harder. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I hear homebrew variously as a bad word or not. I don't know. It's kind of weird how it's out there. Um, it, it's not a bad word and it's not a bad thing to homebrew. And it doesn't mean your products or your information or your game is any better or worse than anybody else's. It just means it's yours. It just means you haven't sold it. To somebody else, yeah. yeah, yeah so nice throw it on DM's Guild. Throw it on DM's Guild. Throw it on Driver's Third. Whatever. Um, now your homebrew is a professional product. And um, <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing I did with one of my games, and I I don't I doubt I came up with this, but you know we had a situation where you had to sell, you had to give up a memory, or something like that. And I think that maybe that was that game. But anyway, I I asked my player. They had no idea what I was talking about. And I didn't, I don't even know if they made backstories up. Okay, I'm going to be awful. I don't read my players' backstories very well. Oh, no. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, what? how do you not have backstories? Um, I make them up as I go, usually. Um, that's yeah, more fun. It's, I, I like having my players come up with a general backstory, and maybe as they yep. start to learn their characters more, then yep. maybe do a little bit more in-depth. And so that that's what I did, though. So I was told to, to go through this shadow bridge. They had to give a, a memory up. 
And I said, all right. And they case. never remember it again? Correct. Okay. And it had to be worthwhile. And I said, if she doesn't like it, you're going to get killed or something bad will happen to you. I like um, Okay. I'm, I'm taking and that And so she's still, and I was like, yeah, my Casey, Rob. And they all, you know what? Every single one of them did awesome. They all did fantastic. You know, I have a group of guys and gals that are, well, they go from my age down and some love the whole war game, like the strategy tactical part. Others like the role playing part. We all, we all get along fantastically, but every single one of them got into that. And I'm like, all right, so what? And I just stopped and I looked straight at them and I said, well, what is the happiest memory from your childhood? Or what is the saddest memory from your childhood or who hurt you most? I mean, stuff like that. Um, and that's a great thing. You throw that in your your adventure, your campaign or whatever, where you beat a hag or something like that, and they want to know it. And the only way they're going to give you X is if you do this. You know, the fairy markets always talk about they want to they want to buy your first kiss or they want to sell, you know, whatever. Um, give the DM a handful of examples so that, you know, that person has an idea of where you're going and let them loose. And that will be a session they will love. I like uh, that idea a lot. That's a yeah. really good one. Yeah, and and whenever something happens, make it come back. If you're writing a three story or you know a, a a three act story or whatever, something happens in the first one or the second, have it come back. Tie that loose end up, um, which I, I do with my players too. They, I won't tell the story again because I sold it every podcast ever done. But one of my players <laughs> on his first campaign with me blew up, like threw a fireball in a crowd of venison, basically. Um, that changed the campaign for the rest because they were wanted by the police for a while until that got better. And I, there are, that's the thing too. It's like, we forget these things. Like, well, we don't all live in a, they are D our players don't live in a dungeon probably. So, you know, if you're in water deep and you do whatever, um, and you break the law, the guards will come for you eventually. Um, or you just might get shot from the end with an arrow out of the dark, which is a fun way to tell people, you know, to surprise somebody too is, you know, an arrow, you know, something can see you, before you can see them, if you've got a torch, um, and that that longbow's got an awful good range. Oh yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I I like how you mentioned. Um, isn't that some of the best things about being a DM is when your players do something completely unexpected and changes like how you were essentially gonna sort of run the game that night. Yep, it, it is, and you know, and that was a campaign that I. I use probably 80. I actually do use pre-made stuff most of the time when I'm running my own campaigns. And um, I just mix in NPCs or make yeah. sure I draw back little things like that. So, I mean, I kept the, and again, that's why I use milestones because I'll buy the modules and I'm like, no, we're going to do these in this order. Um, but yeah, so the police thing, that was that we were in an urban, dark D&D thing and the police captain kept coming back. And the gang that they killed kept trying to kill them until they finally, um, one of the players retired his PC because his PC became the leader of the gang. <laughs> it took about six months. I mean, we played a really, awesome. dark, really, really dark one. Um, That's awesome. But it was great. And again, it kept them very, very engaged. And I think that's, and everybody had fun. That's awesome. That's really good. Um, yeah, that's... um some really good advice here for especially writing campaign module or just adventure modules. Um, and one other thing I wanted to ask, um, is how important is play testing when you're writing these adventure modules? 
So that's going to depend on how much you're making up yourself to a point. Um, and also just how much practice you have doing it. Um, I think everybody could use with more playtesting. There's probably, well, I guess there is too much. Um, but, you know, playtesting and having others read through your stuff is good. You can do a fair amount of it just with doing math. I mean, I could sit there and just roll dice in a bucket and get an idea of certain things. So when, when you mean just doing the math, are you talking about just the encounters part? Or uh, just him, yeah, yeah, the encounters, the ability, all the all the mechanics. Okay, just the mechanics part then. Right, the mechanics are the playtesting. I mean, most of the other playtesting, it's you. I would always recommend having. So first, if you can afford an editor, so let's we're talking about if you're doing a professional product that you're going to sell, if you can afford an editor, you really need one. Okay. Um, especially if you can get an editor that knows crunch, you know, that knows the mechanics. Yeah. Um, I actually have one that I love and he's cheap, um, but you know, edit it's editors will make you better editors. I mean, I've most of my books, the editor probably got paid more than I did. And that's, that's what it is. That's the way it is, um, for whatever, for good or bad. Um, but every editor I've worked with has made my, whatever I've written much better much much better and again you want an editor that not only does the actual the grammar and context and storylines and all that stuff too but also if you can find one that can do the mechanics that's fantastic um huge 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 help um and they'll identify but you can get just a reader to help you with plot holes mm -hmm. which is kind of what you know some people think of so when i think playtesting i think mechanics is really all i think of um because my editors will do all that other stuff you know, it's not just putting commas in the right places and cutting out words here and there. There's, it, it's again, I, I, hopefully my, any of my editors hear this, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> they're fantastic. Like, I mean, I've actually, so I'll drop a name. So I work with Kim Mohan, who Kim's name has been on most of the Dungeons and Dragons books since like Gary Gygax hired Kim. Oh, he wow. still does the books. I mean, Kim's name is on all the books that are coming out now too. And Kim is awesome. And, you know, uh, Hannah is someone I've started working with lately, Jess, Craig, there's a couple, and um, Megan, and they're all great, and they're all a little different, but they all make it better. And again, an editor is worth everything in the world, and that's going to be one thing you'll see with, and that'll be what sets somebody apart from someone who's doing it as a company. Not necessarily as a professional, but as a company. Because a company, when they start doing it, they will have an editor um, I know, mean, kind of joked about the art, but they will tend to have art. You can get great art and great maps pretty cheaply. Like Dyson um, has map packs that are like twenty bucks, and you get three hundred maps that he lets you use commercially. Oh, cool! Which is yeah, that's what I'm using for uh, Harper's book actually, because maps are really expensive. I spent a lot of money on maps for Tales of the or uh, Lampslide. Uh, way too much money. Um, <laughs> but, as much uh, money as magic cards. What, what, what's more expensive, buying those maps or magic cards? You know, a set of pain lands and a map are about the same. Aren't the pain lands still like, how much are they now? What, pain lands? Pain lands are maybe four or five bucks a pop, maybe? Oh, they're cheap now. That's, yeah. That's crap. <laughs> they weren't cheap when I bought them. Are, are you um, thinking of dual lands or something? Oh, like that. Well, the pain land. Well, so it wasn't too long ago when the pain lands were hard to get and expensive still. Like what, Blood Marsh or something like that? Was that one? Oh, the, oh, the oh, dual you're, thinking of, you're thinking of fetch lands. 
Oh, you're right. Catch. Yeah. See, yeah. I can't even remember my terms anymore. Yeah, yeah. Fet- fetch lands are anywhere from twenty to ninety dollars. Yep. A piece. Yep. I had so I got. Oh, I'm gonna mess this all up. I even pulled it out of a pack. A foil fetch. Once. That might be the only card I ever got that was worth more than a nickel. But <laughs> money I spent. But anyway, yeah. So yeah, a map. Oh uh, gosh, you can spend several. You can spend several hundred dollars on a map. One map. Um, yeah. yeah, so we can, that's a whole different discussion of budgets and spreadsheets and stuff. Um, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe anyway, so yeah, interview. <laughs> yeah, so, but yeah, no, editing is huge. Playtesting is for mechanics, which again, if you use, um, existing creatures from the SRD, or if you're working with a publisher, their own, you're set. That helps enormously. And then it's just doing some basic math that you can probably do yourself, um, in a lot of cases and you know when we send stuff out to play testers like cobalt does i'll get back 30 or 40 um and it's funny because what you know ben does their play testing and ben always tells me he's like well half said it's you know half said it's too hard half said it's too easy i think you got it right I'm like done that works as long as the as long as we we meet in the middle we're fine nice. um if everybody says it's too hard or everybody says it's too easy then we probably need to read well i read them anyway but we might need to redesign um, it's funny though. You can see how people play the game differently too. When you read play testers. Yeah, that was, um, which is interesting. Actually, it's almost, it's, it's more fun than, um, watching other people who just like read somebody, read a DM's account of his own, his or her own game. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. That, that was one thing that, um, kind of took me by surprise was, so I had, um, one session where I play tested the module I'm trying to write. Um, and I only really have chapter one done and I'm ha- and chapter two is almost done. Chapter two is the biggest chapter since that's more of a, you know, if then or else type chapter. Right. And chapter three is more chapters one and three are very straightforward. Chapter two is like where things can veer off, but it'll still end up in the same place in chapter three, just depending on how you get there. Um, right. will determine, you know, the ending and all that. Um, but chapter one is the players that I was playing with. They took it in a completely different way that I didn't even account for. <laughs> or even or really think and that that to me was really mind opening because it's thinking okay so i'm i was thinking chapter one was just going to be pretty straightforward and i was thinking okay they're not going to do xyz because i thought i wrote to where they couldn't do that but then they decided to do it anyway and they opened up this whole big thing where i'm like okay that i like where this is going now what they're doing and now i sort of want to put it in the module now in a sense right. so how important is stuff like that to you to where, like you said, you have a reader where you can think of plot holes or something like that. But what about, do you ever have play testers where they maybe have take things in a direction where you didn't even think of before? How often does that happen for you? Or- it does sometimes. And depending on where they go and when they tell me, that will depend on what I can do. I see. Uh, so it depends on how far you are in the process of it. Right. Yeah. So I had one book that was, I mean, I wrote a hundred thousand words and someone gave me a fantastic suggestion that I wish I'd heard four months earlier. And I told them, and I I told them, you know what, I, Bob, I love what you said. I can't rewrite the book. (laughs) Um, I wish I had, man. Well, it could have. I mean, and this was, again, this was something, this was a layered story of 15 consecutive adventures. Um, and honestly, right now, I wish I could remember what he said, but it was it was a fantastic idea. Um, and there's a point where 
you can't redo it. Now, there are some things, and this happened in a different project, is where a story was written 15 years ago or an adventure, it was getting redone, and the... I don't want to, not social landscape's not right. It was it written very insensitively um, for from a lot of different perspectives, um, cultural, sexual orientation, like that. It was just a oh, very, yeah. Yeah. it was, no, it was insensitive. Um, and yeah. it was something that 15 years ago, nobody thought about and didn't realize it was bad then. It's just nobody realized it or yeah. the people that looked at it didn't or whatever. And we did send it to our play testers and they're like, uh, you can't do this. And honestly, it got past several of us before we got it to our playtesters. Um, and when they gave it back, we were like, oh, crap, you were absolutely right. And we, I mean, it, I had already knocked out 30 or 40% of that thing and then made some quick changes to address the glaring issues. And then we ended up just scrapping it and basically rebuilding the entire thing. Um, so if it's something like that, I'm going to be like, well, crap, I've got to start over. <laughs> so again, that's where it is. It kind of depends on what it is um, and where you are in the process. And there are absolutely things that can be bad enough that you've got to start over, which really stinks. But if if that's if you're the mistake is that severe, you know what, you should have anyway. Um, you know, it, it's a learning lesson. Yeah. Hopefully, it's not something you did on purpose. You know, hopefully, it's not something someone did. Some people do that on purpose. I don't. Um, but. You know, again, that's something you have you have to take. You've just got to you got to deal with it. And you got to fix it. Um, yeah, and playtesting, you have to have a thick skin because people are going to give you all their opinions, and <laughs> you should have them, and you should hear them, and you should know them, and then you should feel comfortable, um, politely and professionally disagreeing or agreeing or just not engaging at all. Which obviously is probably what happens ninety percent of the time for a playtesting. Um, we read it and we don't sit there and respond to all thousand people every once in a while. I do. Somebody gives me something awesome. I definitely actually will do something for them, but, uh, that doesn't happen too often. That's really good. You've come, uh, you've definitely given me a lot of good ideas. I like the, um, I, I like a lot of the stuff like the bell curve initiative, you know, thinking of, I, I guess I never really thought of just doing the math for it. It's, the, the only kind of math I was sort of doing was just like CR calculator and just never really thinking of damage per output. Um, or I mean, per, per round and all that. Um, so for someone like myself or, or maybe whoever else is listening, who's aspiring to want to just write adventure modules, I know you mentioned before, just do it. Do you have any other advice out there that you can, you know what, what I love, I actually still like doing it, even though I haven't gotten to do it in forever and I'm too busy to do it now. Uh, I really like converting old modules. Um, I'm slightly jealous and slightly upset at Goodman Games for redoing Keep uh, uh, Barrier Peaks because I actually have been looking at that to do for three years. Um, <laughs> that was one of the projects I wanted to do before I did Tales and I never got around to it. And when you grab an old game, especially, so one thing, or and not even just an old game, grab a Pathfinder. If you want to get really interested, I mean, Grab a Cthulhu game, grab a Fate game, grab whatever you want. Shadow is Demon Lord. Those are awesome. Very different, but very good. Um, it doesn't even have to be D20 is what I guess where I'm going. And yeah. look at it and read it. And don't read it like it. So this is something I was reading from a, 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 a little lesson thing from Neil Gaiman that I was watching. And when I stopped, he said that he said when he stopped reading as a reader and started reading as a writer, 
he read them differently. And when I read something as a designer, I read it differently versus just reading it for fun. And I actually, I used to love just, I used to read them for fun all the time and I still do. Um, But grab an old adventure that you think looks fun and grab the PDF and drag it over to Word, do whatever you want. I mean, heck, I I write in my games, which terrifies people. I've got my copy, I have two copies of Tales of Margaret, the original one, and one's got pencil marks and highlighter all over it. Um, But grab it and see how somebody else built theirs. And then the best part for you as a designer is going to be making it from third to fifth. Do the research that everybody else has done online to say, well, if I had this, what does this mean now? Um, what's an equivalent skill? What's an equivalent CR? What's an equivalent um, AC or a, a proficiency bonus or an attack output or whatever? And then you start, when you start converting, you start to get into it and start knowing it much, much better than, than you would otherwise. Um, and that's when you get into the mechanics. Um, I think, because that's, I, I can't remember, I think we said this right at the beginning, there is a little bit of a difference between a writer and a game designer. Yeah. Or, um, and if there, I didn't say that, I've been thinking it a lot later, lately. Um, yeah, we and I love not really both. mention it too much, but yeah. Yeah, and I love both, and I actually really, really like writing. But I also am starting to do the mechanics again, because I'm writing a project that's having me build character classes and spells and all that stuff. Um, and so the mechanics, again, it's it's a logical, mathematical, problem-solving type situation. So, you know, some people can certainly do both. Um, some people, that's a great team, is somebody that has that math brain um, or that problem-solving brain. But again, if you can find a great old first, second, third edition, whatever, fourth edition, Pathfinder, I don't know, whatever, um, there's thousands of great modules out there Find one that looks fun. I'm sure it's like five bucks on drive-through. Go grab it. You know, give that give that artist <laughs> give that give that writer two bucks, and um, just start tearing it up. Just beat it up, tear it up, and feel free. And again, rewrite it if you want to. So you know, just because barrier. Oh gosh, barrier is dense. <laughs> um, all those old all those old ones are. Dense. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, all of sure. them and you can rewrite them and by re you know and i'm going to say rewrite but maybe what i really should say is reimagine um and take, do take the do your own spin yeah. on all of it you exactly. know you could write your version of tomo of annihilation which might be better um and you'll certainly learn you know maybe you'll put some monsters in there because that would be nice not to just spend four hours crawling on your hands and knees looking for traps yes yeah, speaking uh, of tomb annihilation or not tomb annihilation but yeah that's anyway go ahead no no speaking of that is i'm actually playing in a campaign right now with my oldest daughter playing tomb of annihilation and the dm started off as i already read through the book but i'm i'm trying to not metagame like most <laughs> people are tempted to do but the but the DM started it off completely different compared to the book, and I'm loving it. We started it off, and instead of going straight to Port Naranzaru or however you say it, um, it we started off as a shipwreck, and we're having we have to survive in the jungle and try to find our way through the towns and all that stuff. Oh, that's cool. That's it's, a really good idea. I like it, that. It's re- it's really really fun. So we kind of have no idea where we are in the jungle and having to try to find our way to Port Naranzaru when we have no idea where we're at. We found this lizard folk tribe that took us in and um, it's just a lot of fun. I just wanted to mention that real quick. Just (laughs) like you said, reimagine it essentially. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, There's, there's only what, like 
13 ideas or I don't know, there's something out there and I can't remember. I'm so tired right now, but um, <laughs> no, there's only, there's only like eight or 10 or something like that. Actual stories out there. If you ever yeah. look at it, it's like, how many stories are there really? And the numbers like, it's like 10 and we're just all reimagining the same story with slightly different twists every single time. And you know, your, your adventures, you have a dungeon crawl you have, which a hex crawl is still a dungeon crawl. It's just in a forest. You know, you have an urban adventure. I mean, they're all very similar. It's just the details. Your the way you put your words to it, or what makes it different. Um, and that's that's what it is. So yeah, I I love converting old stuff. Um, that's good. And actually, I really love doing. It. I wish I'm so mad I didn't do barrier. Um, <laughs> but oh well. No, I, I like that idea. It's um you sort of put into my head too. And maybe I'm feeling a little selfish because I wanted to interview someone like yourself to just really pick your brain because I'm trying to write a module. It's you, you brought up a really good idea that maybe some other people need to hear, too, is I feel I'm really good at coming up with stories like I can have a general plot line and then tr sort of elaborate from there is I feel like I feel at least all the games that I've DM'd and all the feedback I've ever heard, I feel like I'm pretty good at hooking the players. Sometimes where I feel I'm weak at is coming up with good encounters. Sometimes, either sometimes I make them way too hard or way too easy. So when I'm writing this book, and I like your idea of maybe finding someone who can help you with just the mechanics part, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that to me is perfect idea you know maybe for people out there who don't have a team or whatever maybe find your buddy or something like that who who's really good has that math brain and you know can just nail out okay instead of doing five kabols in this counter let's up it to 10 or something like that right. just to make it challenging it's I, yeah. I like that idea it's really good yeah and, and so don't forget too though you can always do your so you can do a sidebar to adjust as needed um yep. you can even do the again that variable um, NPC, that variable monster. It's like I have one per, one monster per a PC or one half or, you know, one monster per two PCs or whatever like that. So that's nice and variable. That actually takes your math out of it. And then you only really have to say, well, this creature, does this creature look like they, how hard would they be for a PC at the level that I have right now this game's for? And then that, that helps tremendously. And actually, I don't think enough people do it. And I, I don't know why not, actually. I, I don't think it's lazy. I think it's actually good math and good mechanics um, and, and easy. It's easy to design, but I think it's good design. Okay. Oh, you know, that just reminded me, speaking of design, um, something just popped up in my head. So speaking of monsters, we've already talked about, you know, encounters, um, you know, ability checks. What about when you're trying to do treasure, in a sense? Like, what kind of, when you're thinking yeah. of maybe magic items or just regular items or weapons armor how do you determine what you want to put in i mean obviously like most players you're gonna most players are gonna want that cool awesome magic item but we don't want to break our module for yeah. it, it just makes it too easy so so here's the answer here's an answer that the players won't like um fifth edition is not or fifth edition is designed where you don't have to have magic items necessarily to be competitive yeah. you really don't and I came into that a lot with Ghoul Island. Um, so again, I'm taking you from first to 15th level. Sandy is an old school guy, um, Call of Cthulhu guy, RuneQuest. They don't even have levels in those games. Yeah. So it's a different concept for Sandy um, that he doesn't always like it. And so what I and so him and I talked about it, and we both came to the same agreement, which was that we're going to keep it pretty stingy and pretty low. 
um, and let the DM do whatever they want to do if they want to change it. But something that I do, and maybe I don't see it ever, hardly, is you can throw an adamantine weapon in there every once in a while. And so, because really, what do I want my magic weapon to do? If I'm a combat guy, I want to overcome resistance. That plus one is nice, um, but honestly, unless the designer is taking that into account, it's not coming into effect very often because we don't have enough monsters with ACs over 20. We, we don't. And so unless yeah. you do something else, it's not hard. Once you get up there, I mean, you, I, you know, I'll roll my dice, and if, especially if I'm playing a tier three guy or my tier four, my one tier four guy, I'm like, oh, I got a 36. Does that hit? Yes. Thank you. And just <laughs> going on. Um, so I, I don't do a lot of magic items, actually. So I will do stuff. I will say it's adamantine, or I will say it's silver, or I will say it's mithril, or I will say it's some meteor that acts as magic but doesn't actually give you a bonus to hit or damage. Um I I tend I can go super high level, but I overdid it when I first started playing. And so I've gone the other way. And honestly, it seems to be working fine. And when I do make magic items on a campaign, they're very personal. They're very specific um, to my players. And I'm yeah. happy for people to do that. And I even re- wrote that into one of my games. Said I basically said, you just make up something that you think your player is going to go crazy for. Give it to them. And I'm like, and they don't get to keep it. So it's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, and that's, I mean, that's almost exactly what I wrote in the game, um, in the module that, that, that'll be probably Christmas. Um, and so the other things is you can certainly have something that's magic that doesn't really do anything. So you don't have to worry about overpowering and losing that balance. Yeah. So a sword that sings, I mean, that's magic. Doesn't do anything useful, but it's magic. So it'll overcome magical resistance. So that works. Yeah. Um, you know, you can do someone too and. It could, yeah. So I've done that too. So where it gives you a bonus or a negative, you know, a, a modifier to like your initiative or to a skill check or whatever. There's all sorts of fun, kind of silly stuff like that that you can do. And I think giving it personality makes it a lot more, that makes it work. Because yeah. uh, a plus three sword is awesome, but it's it's not as fun as, you know, giving it a bunch of stuff. You know, like the, that's the thing too, is this edition took away the bonuses. From a lot of things like i don't like you know a lot of the really good swords and or weapons and whatnot don't actually have a plus to hit yeah. but they do stuff um and there's no reason why you can't i mean you do a sword that can create light once a day and that's a magic sword and that's super useful um my yeah the one i played eventually for about a year maybe a year and a half and i have an eventually legal monk that's a monk fighter rogue assassin I am still using a plus one longbow I got in Shadow, or not Shadow, in Storm King's Thunder. What was that, like the third adventure where you can get that plus one bow? Where they, um, the hill giants, the giants come down and storm the whatever. So like, so I have an 18th level character using a weapon that he got in third level. And that's <laughs> the way the game is designed. And yeah. so it is fun. And I think there's other ways we just have to be creative about it so that we don't go overboard. Because all of a sudden you're going to give them something they don't get and you're going to regret it. Um, and it will change your design because that's the other thing. If you look at the math, a plus two, you know, that's 10%. You just gave them a 10% better chance to do whatever, to, you know, to hit every single time. Or, you know, if it's a plus three damage, a plus three dagger does the same average damage as a great sword. And that's one way to think about it. It's like, oh, yeah, shit. I, 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 um, like, I guess I never really thought about it's, that. It's, it's, 
yeah it, it's still going back to the part of the mechanics of the math of it like how does it break your future encounters at that point and like you said it you are right with fifth edition you could beat a whole campaign without ever having a magic item essentially it's like your class yep. is going to give you so much good stuff and there's right. classes out there like bards or clerics that can give such good buffs that a magic item would not sort of not right. really do too much right yeah so the only legitimate gripe or no, that's not the only legitimate but, but when i when my players say i really need something that cuts through resistance that i'll listen to you know i'll certainly i mean i listen to them always but that's yeah. that's pretty legitimate because if you have something that has resistance and you can't get through it all of a sudden it has twice as many hit points and that's a big deal and that's supposed to in some cases um but that, that can be a pretty big deal. And I always wonder if people think that's like, you know, they throw resistance on a CR 18, something like that means nothing because there's nobody that's going to touch them that doesn't have a magic weapon or doing it with a spell anyway. Yeah, very true. Um, so before we end it here, and I, first I just want to thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk with me. It's been very valuable to me, and I hope my listeners enjoyed it as well too. Um, can you give me your favorite memory of, playing an rpg doesn't have to be dnd any any memory that you can think of and this is inspired by your little shadow bridge thing <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh lots of good ones um I'm trying to think of what i haven't gone off or like repeated at a different podcast or something so one thing that's super fun and it's not quite rpg well it is um so harper and i my eight and a half year old um she loves to play. She's a very stabby rogue. She doesn't care about anything <laughs> but backstabs. She backstabs, which is an old school term. She's like, I'm yeah. going to sneak and backstab. Um, but, you know, her and I will play. Basically, we'll grab two of my WizKids minis, and I'll grab the stats from my phone, and we'll just do a battle one-on-one, -on -one, player versus player, me and her. Um, and she doesn't have the slightest clue what any of them are. So she picks them both, and then we see what happens. And I had a Magmin, which is like a CR half or something like that. And she had something, like, she probably had like a Mind Flare. I don't know, something amazing. And somehow I almost got her. Um, but we just went there back and forth, rolling our dice back and forth, and just seeing her with, you know, hitting a 20, a natural 20 with her Storm Giant, which, oh, she has Storm Giant once too. So seeing her hit a natural 20 with a storm giant you know when she's playing a storm giant against my like knoll or something and doing <laughs> you want damage um seeing that crack it was awesome and then the next like literally the next roll she got a one and she's just like oh i mean so dramatic like a, only That's like funny. a little girl can be oh, um and getting it. another 20 like two seconds later so just Playing, again, I mean, they're all good memories, and I think that's most of my memories. I do have memories of specific things in the game, which are neat. Like, we, I, that monk I mentioned, we, I one-shotted a red dragon, ancient red dragon. Not one-shotted, but I killed it before it got a turn. Actually, oh. before, any, before oh, anybody, actually. That's um, pretty crazy. Well, actually. How, how many players were there? That watched me do it? Um, well, no, no, I mean, like, how, was it just you killed it, or... I was the only one that actually did damage to it. Because it says I had a... So I had a monk, shadow assassin, shadow monk, rogue assassin, battle master fighter. So we were hasted. That hasted, has a lot of hit points, man. How did you... <laughs> hasted, action surge, assassinate. 
because I surprised it. Because I had Pass Without Trace and I was invisible. Oh my god. So, <laughs> it was like eight attacks. All of them were crits. Two were with Sneak. And I think I had a Frost something. Sword. I don't know. I actually wrote it up for Cobalt once, and I don't think they they may it may pop up in an ex- thing once, but yeah, no, it was actually eventually legal and everything. But wow, it was just and I actually it was these, on paper it's like that's the dumbest build, but I did it because we our fighter left and then our rogue left. I'm like, well, crap. I mean, so I I did these things because I was the tank and then I also was the rogue for the party, but I was a bar, uh, monk without any armor. But uh, that's, that's that was kind awesome. of the neat. That was that was a pretty cool one that I personally did. And then again, the the time when my friend Brian um, threw a fireball at a crowd of doxies and obliterated eighteen of them, uh, <laughs> and, and had to go to jail and had to leave the city forever. That was fun too. He got shivved on the next session that's, and died. That's hilarious. Well, I, I just want to thank you again for coming on. Um, before we end it here, um, do you want to plug anything before yes, we go? I always forget. So. Um, I'm at Twitter. I'm a little bit obsessive with Twitter. Um, I'm at Matthew D. Corley. So I'm pretty complicated there. Um, drive through. You can find my products at uh, Saturday Morning Scenarios, which is my uh, my company. It's just me. So company's maybe a little generous of a term. Uh, <laughs> I have a book that I personally wrote, which is Lampslight Sanitarium. If you like uh, Victorian Gothic horror or want something that's a little bit different, it definitely is. It uses the D. Uh, it uses fifth edition rules, though. Uh, I've had great reviews, great feedback, um, and would love to love to see if some of you guys would look for it. Um, CobaltPress.com, of course. We have Tales of the Margrave. Um, gosh, what else we have? We have so, there's have so much stuff. They have new content almost monthly. Um, they have a fantastic Patreon too, which actually does have new content every month. Uh, let's see what else. Tale, uh, the other one is go to my Twitter sometime, check out my pinch post, and sign up for the email newsletter. That will get you adventure, get you information on Harper's Tale, which is the Kickstarter. Well, it'll be an Indiegogo probably, but crowdfunding project that I am going to be doing with my daughter and a bunch of different writers, a lot of very, very well-known writers, Guild Adepts and Wizards folks. Um, all proceeds for the Kickstarter are, I keep saying Kickstarter, all proceeds for the crowdfunding um, will go to benefit Friends of Kids with Cancer. Um, nice. So yeah, everything we raise after we you know use our expenses, um, we are going to donate it all to friends of kids. We are also going to be giving them books to hand out to kids as well. Good. So that will be an amazing and fun project. I'm super happy and super proud of. Um, and then with Sandy Peterson, so I work for Peterson Games a lot too. My adventure path, Cole, uh, Ghoul Island, which will be four books starting in july did you say four books or bucks four books oh, books. <laughs> yes. okay four books um <laughs> they might do one huge ginormous like 400 pager um but right now it's four books um sandy peterson games and then i've got two other projects with sandy um that i'm also doing that we're pretty early on so they probably won't be here till end of the year or next year okay i feel okay. like I've, that's probably everything well great uno like i said uh thank you again for coming on and thank you all for listening and watching and have a great night all right thanks everybody have a great day